Bloods of Old podcast. Joel Brown, your host here. And it may be the off-season for the AFL, but plenty happening, whether it be with the trade period. But I tell you what, if you've been living under a rock, the Sydney Swans have a new logo. I believe it was leaked Thursday night on the AFL merchandise uh, website. So I think this one's probably a little bit upset that they couldn't control the narrative, but uh, they officially did a, a release on Friday afternoon. And uh, I have to say, I absolutely love the new logo. I think it's uh, great. And uh, you can check out, uh, I think, the Sydney Swans website on YouTube, Tom Harley talking about it, sort of ha- having the old, bringing in the new. And like I said, I absolutely love it. I think uh, it was probably time for the Swans to have a little bit of an image change. And if you haven't seen it, you can check it out on the Bloods of Old Facebook page. And while there is a new logo, it's believed that the Swans will be wearing the same jersey with the V and the outline of the Sydney Opera House. So that's not going to be changing. Where that changes in the future, I'm not too sure. While talking about the new logo, Tom Harley did mention the date November 19 about some future changes that would be coming to the club. So watch this space. Hopefully it's very exciting. We actually got a bit of a mention in one of the articles uh, talking about the leaked logo. I think it was in the Sydney Morning Herald or the Brisbane Times. That was pretty good. But if you'd like to support the podcast, do follow us on Facebook. We're on Twitter as well, at Bloods of Old. And I'll tell you what, would really appreciate a five-star review on iTunes. And uh, on that note, thank you very much for the positive feedback on our previous episode with Darren Creswell. Make sure to subscribe as well on Spotify or Google or however you uh, listen to your podcast. It's all greatly appreciated. And to this week's interview, Gerard Bennett used to wear the number 42 for the Swans. Some would say a Swans cult favourite. Played 32 games. Picked up in the 1999 rookie draft as he had two previous seasons with the Geelong Reserves and Gerard he is a great storyteller probably a little bit hard done by not to get his own radio show in South Australia where he currently resides but like I said great storyteller great talker I'm not going to waste any more time here it is round 19 2002 was the last time Gerard Bennett made an appearance in the red and white he played 32 games and kicked 11 goals but it would be in South Australia where he became somewhat of a cult hero, playing 113 games in the SANFL with South Adelaide, technically retiring in 2008, but you can only officially retire once. But that hasn't stopped Jared Bennett from playing a handful of games around the country. It's a big hello and welcome to Fridge, Jared Bennett. Hello. Thank you very much for the invitation. No, thank you for taking the time to uh, have a chat. Fridge, where did the name Fridge come from? Well, Fridge actually came from my time at the, uh, at the Swans. It was Brad Seymour who came into the gym one, gym one day and uh, he goes, look at him, the big Fridge, he's big and white. You know, he thought I obviously had the, the Tassie moon tan and big shoulders, so yeah, it was, uh, it was the Fridge. And I think that's on most of the social medias. I think it is a Fridge on Instagram, uh, Twitter as yep. well. Yep, Fridge 4, because 4 was the number I wore it. South um, once I got to Adelaide and, uh, and and funnily enough Fridge actually died down after I left Sydney and then one night after a good win at South Scotty McGlone who uh, played obviously up at the Swans and was pretty stiff probably not to, to, to get a chance at senior level but was very good player in the in the twos at Sydney uh, came and joined me at South Adelaide and then one night after a few drinks we just bought it out next minute you know all around Adelaide uh, everyone was calling me Fridge and it stuck. 
<laughs> I think I might have been calling myself Fridge too, actually, which, which might have well, helped. Well, I find with any nickname, for it to stick, you kind of have to live the name. You have to sort of call yourself that and for it to catch on. And then uh, when you've got a few more people calling you, it just, it's, it's the name then, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You've got to write it yourself. Well, I've never really had a nickname, so I've, I'm forever searching for that nickname. Maybe I'll be able to find it uh, at the end of this interview, perhaps. JB, Brown? J- yeah, JB, yeah, yeah, can't hurt, yeah, yeah. Maybe just, yeah, keep it simple, JB. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the, some of the Swans guys there, like the Brad Seymour's and that. I mean, do you still regularly sort of keep in touch with those guys? Yeah, um, Goodsy, Goodsy and Mickey O um, are two guys I probably nearly speak to the most. From, from Sydney, Mickey O was down in town in Adelaide, um, only a week ago, and uh, he likes his basketball. And I've got a mate's name with me at the moment, the Panther, you might see on my Instagram, who plays basketball Monday nights. And Mickey O rang me on the rang me the week before, going, "Mate, do you can you get me a game on on the Monday night?" Like, I said, "Oh, mate, I, I can ask." And he goes, "Mate, I, I don't sit on the bench. Um, can you just let him know I don't sit on the bench?" Like <laughs> starting five, and he was calling himself Lebraz um, before he uh, before he rocked up. But yeah, so he he was down and and had a run. Often, often sort of you know, speak to him and, and catch up with him. Goodsy regularly. Uh, Amon Buchanan, catch up with a bit. Leo Barry, uh, Johnny, Johnny Stevens, uh, and probably Jude Bolden. They're probably the main guys I would speak to on a, on a regular basis. Do you, and do you think the Sydney guys sort of do have a, a, a close bond with each other? Because I, especially back when you were playing, I mean, you were the only AFL team in town and it wasn't like the Victorian teams where, you know, they could have family nearby and they could be there, but you're basically like family as well? Mate, 100%. I mean, we had, a, we had such a good group of, of boys. Um, you know, like I mentioned, Goodsy and Mick, Baltsy, Heath James, Ryan Fitzgerald. You know, Fitzy, one of the funniest men of, you know, I've ever met. Yeah, you know, having lived with him my first year in Adelaide, I lived with him. Rocket made me plan him when when he was back at the Crows and and trying to distract him by talking about girls and going out and stuff. I think I was the only person that got distracted. and He kicked two goals on me. Um, but uh, yeah, we we had a great group. We used to do a lot of stuff together. You know, we'd be out together, shop together, um, beach together. And that because we, we didn't have family about and we were each other's family. And I think it was, you know, you know Nixie, uh, another one, you know, we all very close. And I think sometimes even you actually needed to do something to get away from the boys because we were sort of in each other's pocket, you know what I mean? Sometimes you just sort of need to go and do something by yourself just to sort of have that time because it was, you know, when you're doing everything together, it can sometimes become a little bit much. What is Jared Bennett doing now? I believe you're uh, with the Trusted Advisory Network. What's, what is that? Yep. Can you explain that for us? Yeah, um, so it's network. There'd be um, maybe fifty or sixty uh, of us uh, around uh, Australia, and New Zealand, and so it's um, business advisory um, coaching, helping you know businesses optimize business owners optimize their business and find some hidden profits, uh, giving back you know some freedom. You know, a lot of you know business owners and that are work work so many hours in the business and, and not getting bang for buck and. And, and help them scale the business and make it an investment from something that down the track they can sell. And I believe you're the football director for South Adelaide, who you used to play for. Yep. So um, towards the end of last year, the footy director, the, the football director role was coming up on the board, and uh, Jared Wright, who I played with in my time at South, was coaching, and I, I thought he was doing a good job, and I wanted to help sort of support him in his role. And I hadn't been around a footy club. For a long time, when I left South, I, other than playing a handful of games at Campbelltown, and I played, I played in a 
uh, a charity game in, in Tasmania earlier this year. And when they say you don't lose it, you lose it. Uh, let me tell you. <laughs> a couple of times I went to jump and it was like I'd fallen in a pit. But, uh, but yeah, I thought, I thought it'd be a great experience that to be on the board. There's some, there's some really good minds, business minds and, and smart people on the South border, you know, Supreme Court judge, head of, ex-head of the police association, a few lawyers and stuff. And thought it'd be great to sort of rub shoulders with them, uh, help the club, give a bit back and support one of my mates who's coaching. And, uh, yeah, we got knocked out in the prelim this year against the Eagles, who obviously went on and won the premiership last weekend. So, um, yeah, we had a good year. And I think there's a lot, there's still, you know, some good improvement left. We've got our first, my first footy review with the club sort of coming up this Monday, which I'm sort of organising and, and, and we'll push. So I'm looking forward to that process too, because it'll be the first time. Um, you're absolutely correct about losing it. Uh, I think I hadn't played football since about 2007 when I was a 18-year-old, fresh young kid, now 31, a little bit you know, older. I wouldn't say wiser, but I uh, started playing again. And my first game back, I got a broken uh, shoulder. So one of the Kalani Vale bombers uh, hit me hard. I remember thinking this didn't hurt that much when I was a kid and uh, that was my season done. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, you think back to when you were young and you could play two games in a weekend. Yep. You know, my last time, last time I played, I played and I had to have three games in between my two games because uh, I was that sore. Couldn't even get out of the car when I got home after the first game. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, amazing how, how things change very quickly. And who did you barrack for when you were growing up? Being a Tassie boy, um, my dad was an Essendon man when I was young, so I sort of fell into Essendon a little bit. But as soon as I was able to, uh, to make my own mind up and, and, and not be brainwashed, uh, I was a Richmond guy because Richmond had a lot of Tassie guys. You know, Richo, the Gale brothers, you know, who were great players, Harrow. Um, so, so I became became a Richmond guy, and I was lucky enough when I was playing at the Mariners to kick in a super kick competition at the MCG the day that Richmond and Essendon played in a prelim. I think there was eighty five thousand there, and Richmond come back and won. And the song and you know the yellow and black that was screamed out and, you know, punched in the air. It was, and I was there by myself as a 16-year-old, you know, at the game. It was the first half-field game I'd been to at, at the G. It was unbelievable to, to be able to watch the team little barracks. So, yeah, I was a Richmond guy. And I still got a, you know, soft spot for, for Richmond now, obviously, uh, as well as the Crows and, and uh, sorry, the, the Swans and, and Geelong. Well, it's interesting. Uh, are we going to go for Geelong or Richmond? Because as we record this, it is grand final uh, week. Uh, the Tigers yep. going up against the Cats. Uh, who are you going to barrack for? Who, who, who's your brain going for? And who's your heart going for? Uh, being um, and, and having uh, a bit of a friendship with Dusty and that over the last few years, um, probably go for Richmond because no one, no one that I sort of um, uh, played with at Geelong is still there. But as I said, you know, if Geelong won, I, I wouldn't be disappointed either. I think they're both great teams. It's very interesting that you know neither of them got to play a home game this year. They both had great records in Queensland. So it's probably potentially something about the, the two groups and how close they are as groups, I guess, when they sort of you know, have spent all that time away. I don't know if their families have been around, but you know they've been, been away from home and not played home games, but been able to you know, knock off a couple of pretty good teams too. You know, Port, Port were, had a fantastic season and... and, and only just fell short, and obviously Brisbane, you know, had, had an awesome season too. Um, under you know, mild under 18s coach Fags, who uh, who's done an unbelievable job, you know, at Hawthorne and now now Brizzy. 
Yeah, that brings me to my next question. I believe it was in a previous interview where you've sort of stated that uh, Chris Fagan had a really big effect, uh, influence on your career before being drafted into yeah. the AFL. Yeah, yeah. Fags was, um, Fags was a great coach, you know, especially, you know, obviously I think it's been pretty well documented. He was a, you know, his next teacher. Um, so, you know, taking, taking on the Mariners role, you know, we got 14, 15, 16 year olds sort of, you know, coming, coming through and then, the, you know, mixed in with the Teal Cup squad. You know, I think the, the original Mariners team that we had, I was 15, I think, when we played our first game, Brody Holland was another guy who played a lot of senior footy um, in the AFL. It was, was only 15 too, and he did a great job of um, sort of coaching. We had a lot of guys drafted out of, you know, those sort of years when, when he was at the helm. And then, and then he obviously went on to Melbourne and under with Neil Danaher, reserves coach initially, and then went on to the footy manager role, which he then took on at, at Hawthorne and that before coaching, you know, Brisbane in his own right. And it's amazing the pathway he's taken to get to a senior coach and mm. how, how effective he's been um, as opposed to, you know, some other guys who played at the level but probably haven't been able to have the same impact on players that he has. And, and I think that's one of the one of his strengths is, you know, his, his empathy, his, um, yeah, his nature, the care, really caring for his players, his intensity. He used to be really intense and that, you know, and you see his passion. Uh, it sort of reminds me of his passion that on the, you can't hide from the cameras in an AFL game, obviously, when you're, when you're pretty, pretty passionate and sort of seeing that, you know, reminded me of the times when, you know, he coached us back, back in the late 90s. I think I read a stat somewhere. He's the uh, oldest AFL coach at the moment. Uh, can he, does the, well, not the AFL, but I guess clubs, are they a little bit potentially ageist in the sense of they think uh, once you've hit a certain age, you're a bit too old to be a coach, uh, where the, that could maybe be a benefit? Yeah, I, I really think, um, and it's, it's sort of similar too when they talk about, even about players and getting to a certain age and, I think I think everyone's different. I think it, it really comes back to, to to the individual and what they what they bring to the table. I was lucky enough to have um, Jack Cale coach my last year at South, or started you know coached the first seven games. And you think about what Jack did in the, in you know the SNFL. You know, I think he won maybe three flags as a player, ten as a coach. Coached Collingwood was a gun tennis player. I played golf with him. He took me to the cleaners on the golf course. <laughs> I made the mistake of lipping him in about the first four holes and then I don't think I won another hole in match play afterwards because he actually uh, he's a competitive bugger. And, uh, you know, he coached South at 70. I think he was around 70 years old. So, mm. you know, he was, he was a real motivator. He pumped you up and, and, and you wanted to run through a wall for him, you know. And, and that was a port of, that was a port of old at, at Alberton. And, you know, he had, obviously had amazing success there. So I think it can depend on, obviously, what, what a club wants their coach to be and, and what support maybe they have around them and, and, and who they are themselves. So I don't, I don't think there should be an age limit. If, if, someone, if someone's still a good coach and at, at 70, then, then I think they should be able to coach as long as they want. And, you know, look at a lot of the other sports, you know, Alex Ferguson, you know, in the, in, in the soccer, you know, some of these, uh, the NFL coaches, not that long-standing coaches have, and had great success. Yeah, I think it comes a little bit back to the program and, and, people that have random and you've got to have the players in that too, obviously. I didn't expect to take a bit of a deep, deep dive about coaching. I sort of thought like, could you have like a figurehead like coach, like a, an older sort of statesman who maybe tactically the game's beyond them, but they, they, they can be that inspirational speaker that sort of rallies the troops. And then you have maybe a younger sort of guy who is more tactical. I mean, we, we sort of kind of have sort of seen it in the past where I think like, 
Paul Ruse at Melbourne. I think he sort of was like the weekend coach essentially and Simon Goodwood yep. was doing the stuff in the background. Like, could that be I think more? Sheeds, I think Sheeds and Leon Cameron uh, yeah. at GWS was, yeah. was another example of that. Uh, and I think definitely, I think what Sheeds did for footy in general and, mm. and, and GWS, you know, I've had mates that, you know, involved in GWS like Amon and, you know, Dean Brogan from here, um, Chad Corns, who, you know, just sort of said, you know, Sheeds just never forgot someone. He'd yeah. always remember who someone was and give someone the time of day and talk for, you know, and he just wanted to, and he'd light up a bit of a room. And I, I think, you know, having a guy like that, the figurehead, and then a Leon Cameron who, you know, up to date with all the, you know, the more technical side of the game, you know, was a good fit. It'll be interesting to see GWS, they might have missed their window. It seems they mm. sort of slipped a bit here, especially towards the end. And, and so it'll be interesting to see how they go. But I think at that time, you know, the sheets into Leon Cameron was something that worked really well. You mentioned earlier you played for the Tassie uh, Mariners, uh, TAC yeah. Cup, I believe that was, uh, I guess the statewide league, uh, North Hobart. I was yeah. recently speaking with uh, a fellow Tasmanian in uh, Darren Creswell, and I asked him, will and I guess does Tasmania deserve to have an AFL team? Do they, or is it best for Tassie to be a bit of a, a talent pool? I think that Tassie deserves a team. The, the, the only, I think, the, the question mark would be commercially, funding, you know, a club needs to obviously, and you know, being on the board now at South, you know, you sort of see how lean clubs can run and and what where they sort of make their revenue from. I think for Tassie to have a team, they need to they need to show that obviously, without assistance, maybe assistance initially, obviously to, to to get a team off the ground, but once once up and going, that they could they could make it financially viable and sustainable in their own in their own right. I think there's definitely the support there. Uh, you only have to see the Kangaroos, Hawthorne games, and they're teams that they've adopted, not not a team of their own. I think if there was a team, you know, that was a Tassie team, that, that the support would really be there. The, the grounds, they've got the grounds and that to do it. It would just be that, I think, the sustainability from a financial point that would, would be the, the clincher to, to, to being able to have a team and, and then sustain it for a long time. I've heard, I've heard rumours that maybe the Kangaroos, are going to be the AFL want the Kangaroos to go there on the back of, you know, where the sort of clubs at the minute, um, and maybe the financial position. They're forever the travelling Kangaroos, aren't they? I remember back uh, when I first sort of really get into footy. You know, were they going to move to Sydney or were they going to move to okay. Tassie? Come into our house, yeah, they were coming into our house. That was that was <laughs> what the big call, you know. We come, this is our house, and they're coming up the SCG and and playing games. I remember board members and, and the, the heads, the figureheads of the club, you know, really passionate, obviously, and, and as we should have been. You know, Sydney was, Sydney was our, our I mean, the SCG was our ground, and, and and Sydney was our was our home. And you know, having a having a team with the name Melbourne in it coming up and, and trying to take our territory was, you know, it was an interesting experience. And they have, and they, they've been linked to, I think, they linked to Brisbane and that before as well. I think so, um, yeah. yeah. And, and, and playing games in Tassie too. So, yeah, they, they have. And I suppose they've sort of forever been a team that's always been on the on the edge of the financial cusp, I guess, in terms of their sustainability and, and, and longevity. And But, geez, they've had some, uh, you know, they've also had some fantastic teams and players and, and amazing support and supporters who give their give their heart heart for them as well. So, you know, do you take a North Melbourne and put them in in Tassie, and is that great for North Melbourne? Potentially, it is financially, you know, something that would be great for the club. But does it take away from their supporters? You know, that have sort of long long time been at Arden Street. 
but Fitzroy going to the line, you know, going up to, to Brisbane and that was obviously, you know, a great yeah, thing yeah. for them. But yeah. Wasn't that long, was it, how long after did they win the three flags? You know, it wasn't that long wasn't it after. Would have been, yeah, like I think there was like the, the mid-90s, a uh, bit of developing and, yeah, one of the best teams that we've seen in the past uh, couple of decades. Uh, I was going to say 96 was a good year for North Melbourne, obviously beating the Swans in the grand final, but uh, <laughs> you might remember 96 as well for the uh, national draft. Uh, you were picked up by yep. Geelong. Can you remember yep. what number you were picked with from Geelong? Mate, I do. And the reason, the reason I do is because leading into the draft, a couple of quick funny stories. First of all, uh, one day I accidentally told Mel Judkins to get effed on the phone when he rang up to organise a meeting with uh, myself and my family because um, my uh, dad's partner had rang and hugged up a couple of times because she was upset with dad and I went to, <laughs> went to tell her where to go on the third time and it wasn't her, it was Mel Judkins and uh, there was, the phone didn't hang up. Then there was a guy's voice saying, who's this? And I said, it's Gerard Bennett. And he said, I said, who's this? He goes, it's Mel Judkins from Essendon. And I've gone, just told him that <laughs> So that so Essendon didn't pick me up surprisingly enough, mm. um, but uh, but when when he, uh, Sheeds and Dave Whedon come, you know Sheeds was sort of saying you know you'll go top ten and this that and the other. It's amazing, you know, you're very impressionable at that age coming through. And you know I'd sort of had some successes as a junior, being Australian under sixteen and under eighteen and best of all team of the year and runner up in the medal. But when, when someone says that, you sort of think, you know, they know what they're talking about that I was going on top ten. I my plan was that I actually flew over the draft and my plan was delayed. And um, I was walking through the foyer and heard the guy from the Geelong advertiser on the phone and he said, uh, we've picked up a couple of Tassie boys and Lee Brockman, my mate, actually got picked up number eight and I was number 18. So he, uh, he went 10 spots before me. But, uh, yes, yeah, so I was first round and, and, and pick 18. Is that something that uh, all AFL footballers remember is the number they were picked up with? Because I asked Ryan O'Keefe the same question and he, he, knew, he knew the number straight away. Ryan would definitely know the number. And um, what, what number was Ryan? I think it was 56. It was in the 50s. It was like, you know, quite a yeah. high number considering, yeah, I mean. Very high. Very, he was very high, Ryan. You know, I was 18, he was 56. And then you look at then where the careers went after that and, you know, <laughs> there was quite a difference <laughs> the other way. <laughs> he was, you know, I think Ryan, Ryan was, when the Swans were at their best, I think Ryan was, you know, nearly the most important player, I think. Swans had, you know, for that link player, hard running, half forward, on baller that could take a mark and beautiful skills. Being at Geelong, did you get to uh, rub shoulders uh, with God? Funnily enough, and a few of my mates have great joy in reminding me of this. So I actually played in Gaz's last game. This is not what they remind me of, but I played in Gaz's last game. So he played uh, in round one, 97. He actually played a reserves game. It was so funny because he didn't rock up till after Christmas. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, he'd, he'd rock, rock up with his shirt off, you know, sunnies on, bag over his shoulder into the... I mean, one day there was a knock on the side door of the gym and he just rolled in with a motorbike, no helmet, um, <laughs> into the change rooms. That was just... Okay. Um, but, yeah, so I played his last game and he actually did his knee and he was playing on Scotty Turner who did his knee as well. Fast forward four weeks later, I did my knee and two or three weeks after that on, because Gaz was 35 and, you know, he wasn't going to play the year after. It was going to be his last season. He was trying to obviously get his knee right to, to be able to get on the park and, and maybe play a couple of games. And I'd had the operation, the Rico, and was in physio. And at that time, we didn't have physio at the club. 
we had physio just up the road, like um, Cryo Bay Sports Medicine. I was in, uh, I had the fourth string physio, you know, whacking a machine on, going out of the room. Gaz had the number one physio, hands on, manipulating, <laughs> doing, you know, doing all, the, all the tricks. And he, he said to Jeff Oxley, the physio, he goes, what did that young bloke do to himself? Ox goes, oh, did his knee. He goes, oh, how do you do that? He goes, playing football. He goes, who does he play for? Um, so obviously six months in, I'd made a real impression because end of April, start of May, Gaz uh, still didn't know who I was. Yeah. I mean, did you have any conversations with him or, I mean, as a young 18-year-old kid, were you intimidated or...? Um, I think I was pretty quiet for the first six months. Uh, a couple of boys there, uh, Jason Snow, said, mate, he, he goes, mate, we did nothing out of you for six months. And then after six months, then I obviously started to get a bit cheekier and uh, he, he reckons I was one of the only blokes that could give Barry Stone a bit of stick and take the piss a bit and which he got his back because the first time we played, I played Geelong when I was at Sydney, Barry Stoneham elbowed me and got four weeks. So he, uh, yeah, it took him a while, but he got me in the end, you know. Um, but, but, yeah, I was, I was pretty quiet early. I think at that time they had, uh, you know, Couchy, uh, you know, Stoneham, Brownless, Mansfield, Pickers, Gaz. There were some big personalities and that at the club. So, yeah, probably, probably a little bit of, sort of biding my time and, and, and sort of, you know, intimidated to sort of make too much noise. Johnny Barnes, Johnny yeah. Barnes was, you know, very vocal and, that, and, and was a great, uh, was a great part for the club. Tim McGrath. And I think potentially maybe um, because, you know, there's some very good individual talent, maybe that was something that counted against them a little bit in the end, but there was a lot of individual talent there that didn't quite get that flag, did they? They... They were sort of thereabouts for, you know, all those years when those guys were there. It didn't sort of get the, get the holy grail. But the year Colby took the mark and wasn't paid over against the Crows uh, over here at uh, Amy Park. And, and I think the week before, I had to front up against North under lights on a Friday night, which was North, North spread and butter. So they got the roar into the stick after finishing on top. So, yeah, never, never, never sort of uh, with those group of players were able to... to uh, to, to get the, the big prize at the end. And, and I think as a young bloke at that time, yeah, I think it was probably a bit intimidating. And that uh, to sort of, and, and Gaz kept to himself a lot as well. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of opportunity probably to sort of, and because and, and he got injured as well early in the year, he was, he was sort of in, in rehab. It was a golden era of uh, football, like that mid to late 90s period. I, I mean, and I kind of speaking with Darren Creswell, um, you know, a, a champion of the Sydney Swans, I mean, champion AFL player in general, but these players that were and, so and, important. And, and Chris was a guy too who was just a real determined bugger and hard, like, worked hard. You know, he'd, he'd get told at training not to run because mm. he was sore and go home and run 6-1 cars on his treading. Yeah. You know, just because he was just so driven and, you know, got the most out of him. So I remember him, I remember him playing at North Hobart, my club, when he was, you know, number 21 with tipped hair, snapping guys over his shoulder as a forward, you know, half forward. Potentially, I wouldn't say this to him, but potentially a bit lazy. And then, and then, and then at, at the Swans, he was like just a mad, determined, hardworking midfielder that, mm. that got the best over himself. Like the sort of generation, like he's mentioned the Ablets, the Brownlesses, and just, oh, I mean, the names go on. And so sort of similar with the Swans, the this crew of guys who 
in many ways deserved to win a premiership but didn't but were very instrumental in the 2005 grand final the 2007 grand final for Geelong. yeah i think um i think you know one of the guys who i've a great deal of respect for went to the club at the same time as me and that's brett kirk you know like kirk you, you look at a guy who you know, again, got the best out of himself and hardworking and, and, and passionate and a leader. You know, uh, Stewie Maxfield was another one. You know, Kel, Kel was, you know, a great leader and, and, and led by, you know, action and, and, you know, I wouldn't say Kel, you know, would, would, would preach a lot of stuff out in front of the group, but the way he the way he trained and the way he, you know, way he led the guys on the field and at training, and that was, was amazing. You know, Dunks was, was a great leader, especially defence and that. But, yeah, you know, Kirky... Um, and often say to people, you know, and I'm not someone who's got regret or or um, uh, or, or often thinks what what might have been. But if someone was to ask me, would you do things differently? And knowing what you know now, and you know, I never knew as a as a player when I think sometimes when you've been a good junior, you don't know how hard to push yourself. You don't know how hard you need to work to get what what you potentially want. Um, and I think Kirky. You know, in going to the club at the same time as me, I played 32 games. So he ended up captaining the club. Mm-hmm. You know, and credit, credit to him and, and and what he did, and, and you know, utmost respect for 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 the way he went about it and what he and, and the mark he left on, on on the footy club. Amazing, and he's obviously still there now as a as a coach, doing doing a great job too. You mentioned the uh, knee injury at Geelong. Is that one of the worst things that can happen to a young recruit, especially when you're drafted on potential and then essentially you get limited games in reserves to prove yourself to get to senior level? Is, is that Would you say that's essentially what sort of marred, stopped any sort of progression at Geelong? I think um, I was a bit surprised, to be honest, at the end of my at the end of my second year, and I, and I waited around. It, it, I didn't sort of get told actually until a week before training was meant to start um, wow. that I wasn't going to be there, um, which was sort of a bit potentially. I don't think it's great for a young bloke, you know, to sort of be sitting around and, and waiting that long. I didn't really get a chance to probably test the waters, maybe you know, leading into the the trade or anything, because it was reliant on what maybe happened in the trade for Geelong as to whether I was going to be there or not, and I had to actually walk into the club to ask if I could go home to see my family if I needed to be back for training. And uh, it was funny, I walked in, it was one of those situations where I didn't even really need to go back afterwards because I walked in and Ezzy was the coach at the time, he was on the phone, and Al McConnell was the assistant coach in the office next door. And so I saw Ezzy on the phone and I went into Al's office and I said, hey, how you going, mate? I just wanted to know, mate, I haven't been home to see my family or anything, and training's in a week. And if I had been obviously going to be there next year, he would have went, yeah, mate, go home. We'll see you next week. And he, he goes, oh, hang on, mate. Uh, and he walked out of the room, obviously into Ezzy's office, come back and said, can you come back in 45 minutes? I was like, yeah. wonder what he's going to tell me in 45 minutes that he, <laughs> that he can't tell me now. So I was straight down to the office to, to a flight home. And, you know, being someone who was pretty proud about, you know, my footy and performance and, and stuff, and my old man being such an amazing support and, and and lover of my footy and, and, and my sport that um, I couldn't ring him. I couldn't ring my old man and tell him uh, after I'd been delisted. I rang one of my mates and that instead to sort of pick me up from the airport when I got back and sort of couldn't tell him until I was sort of there because I sort of thought it was, you know, I was disappointed with how that sort of played out. And, and, and you're right, I think as, as, a, as a young player, I'd never been injured before and missed games through injury and 
uh, doing a knee. At first, I thought it wasn't a bad thing because 82 kilo when I got to the club, I think maybe round one, I was 84, and it gave me the opportunity to, to sort of get big and strong. The problem was at the end of the season, I was 96 kilo, and that was from just weights and grinder and boxing. But I was, uh, and, and one of uh, my very mates now, Steve Tinger, who was at Melbourne and, and the Swans, calls me the beach house on stilts because I was probably always top heavy after that. And uh, he calls me the Queenslander on the stilts. So, you know, I was probably always out of proportion after that. And, you know, you lose agility. I think potentially maybe not so much the fact I was injured. It was maybe how I was handled and what my rehab looked like afterwards. I don't think there'd be too many guys now who'd be, you know, 82 kilo doing knee and be 96 and have small legs. Or you know, or, or wasting their legs and not probably ever get it back to what they were before, but be oversized up top. I think they'd be handled differently. And I think you know, legs and core, and that obviously became a lot more focus after you know knee injuries rather than sort of building up the upper body. You mentioned Gary Ayres was on the blower when you went to go see him as a coach. What were your thoughts of uh, Gary Ayres, mate? I was one of the only blokes to actually easy sent me off the training track once, and. It was a really interesting day. It was a really interesting day for me because at the end of my first year, and I, you know, I'd been injured and obviously just stuck in the gym doing rehab, and that all year. And uh, Couchy retired, and number seven was my favourite number. And the club asked me if I wanted to change numbers, and I said, oh, but "I love number seven, you know." And um, they ran Couchy, and Couchy uh, had said, "Yeah, right. Yeah, he was happy for me to wear number seven. And at Geelong, you know, some other clubs that they don't always wear their number at training, but at Geelong, you wore your number. My first, my first training run back with the whole group was the first day of jumpers, right? And we're training at, I can't remember the ground, maybe oh, it was up near maybe the uni. And, and, um, and mate, I was just sort of pumped. It was my first game, it was my first training run back with the group, jumpers round. I, I can't have number seven on the back. And I was pretty much heel, you know, heel clicking on the way into, into the ground. And then I look out in the oval and Benny Graham's wearing number seven. And I'm going, I'm going, no, maybe we're not wearing numbers today. Maybe you know, they've just changed it up. You know, and they'll look at everyone else who's got the number that they wear on their back. And I'm going, mm, that's strange. Nothing had been said. And then I walked in and got handed 36, which was Benny Graham's old number. I think that was the start of my downfall at Geelong when they did the number switch. It was the number gate. We should call it number gate. So, so Benny had somehow wheezed his way into number seven. He did go on to captain the club as well. But... He took number seven, I had 36. I ended up, I think it rattled me a bit and I, I dropped a couple of marks in a row and then got the ball once. And it was my first training run with the group, you know, for 12 months and guys were screaming past when I got the ball yelling out and I took a bit of time to get rid of it and someone else then made a mistake and Ezzy called us in and there was this little old trainer which was about four foot tall, Desi Larry, he was about eight years old, he used to waddle out with water. And he goes, and Benno, what was that? He goes, you're as slow as Desi Larry. And then he goes, if you're not right, and, um, and I just stood there. And then he told me to F off and, yeah, I walked off the track. So I actually got sent off the training track in my first session back after 12 months. So, which, you know, as, as a young guy, it's probably not great because, as I said, it was my first, first one back for, for 12 months. And, and you probably, especially when number seven's been taken away from your pre-training, you, you're probably entitled to be a little bit rattled and, and, and probably not at your best. So... And, and that, was, that was a tough year because I was drafted as a key forward and, and played, I was playing full forward that year and we won the wooden spoon. So, you know, delivery wasn't great. 
probably at times and and and, and wasn't probably coming down as often as maybe maybe uh, you know other teams and also had um, tendonitis in my knee or what what we thought was tendonitis and uh, I had a tendon graft in my ACL so tendonitis was obviously common and I was getting the pain all year although tendonitis is a dull sort of ache I was it was more of a sharp pain and I had an arthroscope at the end of the year and found that there was a bit of bone from the first operation that had gone into my tendon and that was why I was getting getting sharp pains through through my tendon that all year. So, you know, potentially, you know, Geelong wasn't ideal from a, you know, luck point of view. But also, too, I could have been better because, you know, my first year there, and it's really funny now, like looking back now and how the boys are, being being injured, all the older, you know, anyone who was out injured, they'd be, who's injured? We're going out and you'd be out Friday night drinking before a game and... and you know, it was nothing that was really said. And it ends up becoming quite habitable, you know. When you're out for 12 months, you know, I was, I was out Friday night with whoever was injured for the week and not playing. And you know the only guy that pulled me up, and it wasn't until halfway through my second year, and we were doing one-on-one marking. And I was giving him a bit of a bath, and it was Tim McGrath. And he, uh, he, he wouldn't let me go inside till he beat me in a, in a contest. And... He wasn't beating me, so I'm getting a bit boring. And I, I said, mate, I'm, I'm heading in. I think he might have been a bit dark on me because I wouldn't keep going. And then once we got inside in front of other people, he, he said, and by the way, the footy trip's over. And that was probably the first time that made me realise that, you know, I've got into a bit of a bad habit. So, so mate, the luck, the luck maybe wasn't there, but, you know, I could have been better too because I'd got into a habit of sort of going out and now – was other people doing that too? 100%. But when you're coming back from a ring and, and all of a sudden, you know, yeah, I was the first round draft pick the year before, but this new, new year there, there was more first round draft picks and, you know, Mark Woolno and, you know, uh, Matty Scarlett and, and, and those guys, you know. So all of a sudden you go back behind them because you're coming back from an injury. And if you're doing the same as them, you're not going to get back in front. So these are all good things that you realise down the track when you're mature and, and you get a bit older. But, yeah, there's probably not some some things that probably didn't go my way and there were some things that I could have done done better as well that might have might have changed the path. The Swans, they throw you a lifeline picking you up. Uh, number 11, 1999 uh, rookie draft. You're in the Harbour City and as I was kind of mentioning before, a golden era of football but a golden era of the Swans uh, in some cases. I mean, you had legends like Tony Lockett, uh, Paul Kelly, Wayne Swass, Andrew Dunkley, Michael O'Loughlin and a future Brownlow medalist in Adam Goods. How did you adjust and fit in with those guys in the Harbour City? Yeah, so I did pre I did pre-season at Melbourne, and um, a little little side story on that. I the draft in the in the draft um, the um, main draft, Melbourne had said they'd pick they'd pick me up if they were going to pick me up they'd pick me up number sixty, and the Tassie in Tassie the draft wasn't televised, and I was talking to one of my mates Luke Spears and um, through the draft now and we get and we get to pick sixty. I'm sitting there waiting for him to call my name and they called his name and picked up him <laughs> instead of me. But it's one of the most bizarre things. And so not only was I shell-shocked that they picked up him, he then hangs up on me because they're ringing me. They're ringing me. And he goes, got to go to see mate, hangs up on me. So I'm left holding the phone, didn't get picked up. They pick up my mate that I'm talking to and I get left with the, uh, the busy tone because he's kind of <laughs> unbelievable. That's that's insane. But I mean, did they did they get you confused or? Well, 
to this day, I think they might have. I think they might have got us confused. Uh, mate, and, and to be honest, I, I don't blame them because I lost a lot of confidence in... And I wasn't back playing the way that I was pre-Nate at that point. And, you know, we played a couple of practice matches and, and I still still wasn't playing, playing that way. So definitely... And, and Chris Fagan, you know, was the one that got me there to train and, and very, very thankful that I was given that opportunity because, I, you know, Geelong had asked me to stay and train I thought I needed to go somewhere else. You know, I didn't think that had been, you know, a great couple of years for me. Um, I needed to go somewhere to prove myself um, with a different group. And, you know, I was able to do that in Melbourne with, with training and, and stuff. I just still wasn't quite back. And, yeah, you're right, Sydney, Sydney gave me a lifeline, you know, picking me up in the, as a rookie. It wasn't until I played, I think, maybe one or two practice matches for the Swans and I was still, you know, I was okay, but um, not great. And then... Steve Malaxos, you know, come up to me before round one. He goes, mate, mate, I believe in you. I've got faith in you. I'm going to play a centre-half back on uh, big Sirikowski who, you know, was, you know, played a bit of senior footy. He was playing centre-half forward for St Kilda. And in the first minute of the game, the ball got kicked up sort of back. So I had to go back with the flight into a pack and I took the mark and all of a sudden things started to click again. It was amazing that it was just that one incident that, you know, sort of changed. And two weeks later, I debuted. And, and, and played against Destin. And what about uh, Rodney Eid? I guess uh, your your impressions as him as a coach. Uh, I've been talking to some other former players, trying to uh, see if they can give me uh, one of a one of their classic sprays of Rodney Eid. Uh, I, I thought you would potentially have a good story about a Rodney Eid uh, spray. Mate, I've got a few. I've got a few. <laughs> <laughs> some that were given to me, a couple that were given to others. You know, I. You know, Rocket being a Tassie boy and I'm a Tassie boy, you know, I think that I quite liked Rocket. I thought Rocket was, um, you know, tactically very good coach. He was intense. I think he was passionate. I think sometimes, you know, he was quite harsh in the moment. Um, I think, you know, it's been sort of documented a couple of times. You know, I think Will Mitson got the spray that was went, went viral. And I, and I've got a couple of funny incidents one. <laughs> One, I was only telling, I was having a beer with um, Chad Corns and Robbie Gray and, and, and Charlie Dixon last night. And I was telling, because Charlie obviously got coached by Rocket at Gold Coast. And I was telling a story of, um, uh, we were coming up against Freya. And a guy by the name of Luke Toyer was coming back from a broken collarbone. And they were saying that he'd probably come back. He was coming back maybe a week early. And whoever, whoever plays on him, effing hit him, you know. Like, and Mate, that's not how I played my footy at all. Like, you know, I didn't mind, mate, standing on a mark, or, but I wasn't a, you know, a fighter or a, aggressor in that sort of way. And Stuart, as I said, Stuart Maxfield, you know, great leader of the club and very intense in that on game day and that as well. The first quarter, I'm playing with Stephen Coops. He's getting about to get dragged and I look up and who's coming on? Luke Toyer. And I've gone, I've got, yeah, I've got to... But yeah, you know, go and be physical and, and that and he's Stewie Maxfield behind me go, Ben I wanna look around, he goes, I can hit him. And I'm like, so I go to meet him as he's coming on the ground and I bump him and he goes, Oh and then I bump him again, free kick goal. <laughs> and I, straight away the runners out, I get dragged. Cole Seary, you know, footy as I'm coming off the ground, stupid. I'm going, all week we've spoken about hitting him. I hit him and I get dragged. And then at half time, 
I'm just sitting there going like this. And Rocket comes down the room and makes a V-line for me. And he goes, what was that? I told you to go like this, not like that. <laughs> but that's stunning, not, you know, not hitting. So, you know, sometimes you think you're doing the right thing and you're following the coach's instructions and you're not doing the right thing. I think if you didn't get a goal, things might have been a little bit differently, obviously. But, yeah, so that's, that's the passion, you know. And Stewie, Stewie, when I got on the bus after the game and he's sitting on the bus and I'm walking up to him going, and he's just laughing going, mate, what are you doing, <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> because, yeah, you think you're doing, doing the right thing, right? So, um, so, unfortunately, it doesn't always work as according to plan. And, and another, another spray I got, we will plan Essendon, uh, at the SCG, it was a bit wet. Uh, went into a contest, must have been around their half forward, our half back line. Picked it up clean, sort of was turning. You know, they always say, keep your hands free, so you get off the hands. Maybe in the wet, probably maybe need to protect the ball a little bit more. Got hit from behind, spilt it, and of course they got a goal. And uh, again, runner out, got on the phone. I was a, I was a weak CUN turn. I was never playing for the club again. And then again at half time, I'm, having, I'm at the urinal and I see Rob coming again. I'm going, oh, not again. And he actually apologised. So he's probably a bit harsh. So, yeah, I think sometimes he, he you know, realised that um, he, might have, uh, he, he might have been a bit harsh. But, but, yeah, I think in the heat of the moment, he, he, could, he could give a spray. Nixie, Nixie tells of a story where I think there was potentially only one word that wasn't a swear word when, when he copped a spray and that and dragged in that once. But, and then, you know, obviously, infamously, the, the phones that were broken and, and that, and, and Walls hit, obviously, while he was coached, that, that um, you know, sort of went viral as well. I think, you know, coaching is such a, it, it's interesting because as a, play, as a player and that after a game, some, and some guys are better than others, some guys do take it, take it really hard. I mean, the coach's head's, you know, the one that gets spoken about is to, you know, do they have that connectivity? Are they the right person for the job? So, you know, there's, there's a lot of stress in coaching. And I think, you know, you've only got to look, you know, Fags used to be, you know, having a giggle in the box and that when he was next to Clarko. All of a sudden when he's coaching, he's putting his hand over his mouth and, you know, horse does it now, you know. Yeah. Hand over his mouth and, you know, horse was, you know, used to be pretty relaxed and, and that when he was assistant coach. And, and that, not, and not, you know, a lot of respect for Horse too. I think Horse was a very good assistant when I was there and I think he's obviously done an awesome job as, as, as head coach and that too. You were able to really stand out uh, during your time uh, at the Swans. Uh, you sort of had a blondie, blonde hair, it would go black and then back to blonde sometimes. And you're a big fan of the, the long sleeves. Uh, was, there, was there a reason, I guess, for the long sleeves? Uh, you're a big fan of them, but I guess uh, you have some stories about the, the hair as well. <laughs> I was, and it was funny. The other night, uh, we were entertaining a player who actually was just at the Swans and was um, delisted, young Jack, who played actually as a key defender. Um, that we're trying to recruit to South, and we were talking. Uh, and our CEO at South goes, "At my time at South, I think I might have even been the first player in the SNFL field to wear the white boots." And I was trying to say to the guy that I wasn't a flashy, flashy player. And our CEO, Neil Sharp, goes, not flashy. He goes, mate, you had the blonde tipped hair, long sleeve jumper, white boots. I said, I might have looked a bit flashy, but I definitely didn't play flashy. <laughs> you know, so I think maybe I was trying to create something that wasn't there, maybe, um, and, and sort of stand out because, um, because what I did on the field wasn't enough. 
Um, but I did like the long sleeves. Sometimes it, yeah, just was maybe just a comfort thing. It wasn't because I was cold. It was just, uh, yeah, I just, I just sort of liked it. And you know, the hair when you're trying to be a bit funky and and, and that, and you know, we had uh, the, uh, sort of the, the blonde streaks and that initially, um, which I sort of started towards the tail end of Geelong and sort of carried on. Uh, so then I uh, I had a one night when we'd had a couple of drinks, I had a girlfriend of mine tint my eyelashes. Yeah, as you do. I think it's quite common, isn't it? We all do that. Or is that just a one-off? No. You would, have, you would have tinted the eyelashes once or twice. Oh, when you've every, had... every second Friday, me and the wife do that, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I thought. So, and, 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 you know, the comment was made by a couple of the other girls that, geez, it really brought out the colour of your eyes, your blue eyes. So next minute you know, I'm tinting the eyelashes my eyebrows and dye my hair dark to, to bring out the blue, you know. It's quite extreme. Um, and it was quite an event every time I uh, had to get the hair done because it wasn't just the hair, it was the eyebrows, the eyelashes. And I remember we had a, uh, we had, you know, the Swans had Pla, uh, Pla sponsors. And my Pla sponsor one day goes, mate, I've got to come out to my hairdresser, look after you, you know. And I said, where is he? I said, about mine. I went, jeez. You know, living uh, living in the eastern suburbs and having to cross cross the bridge to to go to Balmain just to get the hair done. You know, we at that time with all the boys, it wasn't until Nixie I think moved down to Double Bay. Everyone sort of lived in the same area, and all the Nixie branched out. I was like, "Geez, what's he doing? He's going to Double Bay." So going to Balmain was like it was a bit of an effort. And then I get to Balmain, and I you know they were very nice and they did a great job, but. 250 bucks later, uh, <laughs> hair, hair, hair dye, eyelashes and eyebrows. Uh, wasn't quite the looking after that, uh, that I was hoping for. And, and then, yeah, it was the last time I went there. I, uh, I just had to keep making excuses as to why Bowmane wasn't the viable option um, thereafter. Uh, and I remember uh, young Paul Allison, who, uh, who was from Tassie as well, he got stitched up by one of the girls in the office and said, go to this hairdressing salon in... in uh, in uh, in Pado, and I'll, I'll look after you. And that I think I think at the time he had four hundred and fifty bucks in his bank, and his hair cost three ninety. So we only just been we hadn't long been paid, so he had about three weeks to go before he was paid again. He spent three ninety on his hair. So after that, tried to a couple of home jobs. And I remember one day I tried to I'd been dark and I tried to I thought it had all grown out and tried to go light about an hour and a half before we had to go to the airport. And uh, Lee Brockman, who I was living with, I think it sort of put a couple of streaks through his as well. And next minute, I've washed it. And uh, my hair's about four different colours. It's like turquoise. And uh, I might have had to dash down to the, uh, to the pharmacy to, to get a dark colour to go over the top again, just so Rocket didn't see what my hair was like at the airport. And then get my sister to meet me at the club, uh, sorry, at the hotel to shave it, because it looked horrendous. So, um, and, then, and then, yeah, I carried it on at, at, at South and that one, so I... Uh, once I sort of got here as well and at one point I had the mullet and a couple of different colours running through the mullet and, and whatever and didn't seem to pull any more votes or anything like that. And I'm, and I'm at 41, I'm still single. So what does that tell you? All this, all this effort for no return. Oh, I reckon we could uh, get you uh, for The Bachelor next year. What do you reckon? Well, you know, um, I'm, I'm definitely open. I'm definitely open. Yeah, obviously... Had uh, I was engaged once here in uh, in Adelaide, didn't quite uh, get the journey, and then have it long. At this time last year, I'd broken up with another long-term partner. So back on the market at, at 41, and you know these days, obviously with all the apps and stuff, it's quite an interesting uh, landscape these days. Dating, um, 
you know, because photos are obviously can be quite misleading, Joe. I don't know if you've uh, had the <laughs> fortune, I wouldn't say fortune, the misfortune of uh, having to use the apps yourself. The other day I caught up with a young lady, uh, it was on a Friday night, I think one of the, I think Richmond were playing and she'd suggested where to meet and she said, I'll be there at seven. And I thought, I'll be there at seven? Is she going there to meet me or is she going to be there with other people? And she's getting me to go as a side to see, potentially because if I'm no good, she's going to have the friends there. So, and I asked her that question and she said, she said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm meeting you at seven. I get there at 7.05, 7.35, she strolls downstairs, a couple of friends in tow who I see quickly dart off when they realise I'm, I'm sitting there. And she comes in, I said, I thought we'd stay, you are here with friends. She goes, oh yeah, you know, a heap of friends and that upstairs, do you want to come up? I said, well, I didn't really come here to meet your mates. I said, if you want to have a night with them, you can. She goes, no, no, and she got a drink and she came and sat down. And one of the first things she said to me was, I'm just struggling to come to terms with the fact you look older than your photo. I'm like, gee, yes, like, what's a guy going to do? Uh, so um, the art of uh, having the uh, right picture on your uh, dating app, uh, that's a first world problem yeah. at its best. Mate, it is first world problem. And, you know, obviously I don't know how to use the filters and that properly, but um, obviously I'm looking in my photos, I look a bit younger than what I do. Uh, maybe, I, you know, the crow's feet stand out a bit more in, uh, in, real, in, in, in person. So something that you were lucky to do was uh, to experience uh, the Kokoda track uh, with fellow yeah. Swans. I think it was uh, in the uh, early 2000s. What's harder, the Kokoda track, pre-season training, or a Rocket Eid spray? <sighs> For bite, Rocket sprays are always a bit bitey. You want to be uh, you want to be on, on on high alert um, to make sure you're not covering up. The Kokoda trial was an amazing experience and. You know, I was lucky that I did it with a really good group of boys like Ryan O'Keefe, Leo Barry, Shorbs, um, Kirky. You know, Kirky's puppet, Kirky's puppet fought on the trial. Mine, mine had fought in New Guinea, but on a, in a different part, and that so it sort of had the link. And it was it was a really amazing to go back and speak about our trek with with my puppet. You know, it sort of opened up about his, some of his experiences and that which he'd never done before um, after I'd done it. But sort of doing it with the boys, you know, like a hundred and something K in five days and you talk about some pretty weird, weird stuff when you're walking with five guys for uh, five days. It's a very interesting conversation. But, but I, I remember, I remember I, I did it a bit tough in the first few days because it was, it was, it was hard work. And, and I remember the start of the third night, uh, Charlie Lynn, who, who took us, he was a politician, so we probably should have known that he was going to be a bit full, full of shit, you know. But great man, don't get me wrong. But he used to say to us, 45 minutes up, that's all it's going to, and it'd be like two and a half hours, you know. And, and, and I remember Rowan Wolf, you know, getting a bit aggressive, just wanting just want the truth. He goes, I just want the truth. Stop telling, stop telling us lies that it's going to be like half an hour up. And this one night uh, in particular, bucketing down with Rowan, he said, 45 minutes up and then it's like an eight ball table. It's like flat and... We're getting dinner cooked for us in the village. You'll be able to see the light in the distance. And, and we went 45 minutes up and true to his word, it opened up and it looked like it was just flat and eight ball table. And you could see this light in the distance and they were cooking us dinner. And we started walking and we're, we're all seeing how good this. You know, Charlie's been honest for a change. But great. <laughs> and then it was a swamp. And, you know, it, that, did me, that did me in. And... Charlie goes, I think you guys, you know, we've been going a couple of days, you should change your batteries in your headlamps. 
And I stood there and I go, I'm not taking my bag off my back. I'd crack the sands and thought that I'd be, able to, I'd be right to, to get through. Well, two seconds later after we started walking, my light went flat. <laughs> Dark as over there. And poor, uh, old Leo, poor old Leo Barry had me with my arm around his arm for like an hour and a half going through the swamp just so I could see where I was going. <laughs> so he, uh, he caught the brunt of my, uh, my sads and laziness of not changing my battery. And you guys went through that and just imagine, uh, you know, the, the old diggers uh, powering through that, fearing for their lives. It's, uh, it's amazing, isn't it? But it, it is. And, and one, of the, one of the best experiences of, of the trek was when we finished, it was, it was a real, and, 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 you know, it was a bond. It was a bond, you know, that us six guys, I think, you know, uh, definitely a bond there. And I definitely got closer to all those guys and that, through that experience and sort of when we crossed the line there was a really sort of crossed the line like there was a tape when we went across and and that wasn't sort of uh wasn't that there was an archway you know where you sort of come through and then after that we went to where all the headstones are of all the fallen soldiers and that was that was a quite an emotion you know i was trying to explain to a couple of the guys when i got back and they thought i'd lost my marbles and that because i was saying it was that you know it was emotional and that but it, but it sort of was you know to, to sort of think of sacrifice and we 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 worked hard as a group um, and achieved something together over the last six days, but we weren't getting shot and we didn't lose our life. And you know, obviously, we live in a very good country where you know we we're quite privileged and 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 it puts things into perspective around entitlement and 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 what people before us have, have sort of done for us to be in the position we are. And and it was it was an amazing experience to sort of walk around the snow. You know, some of these guys, sixteen, seventeen you know, and, and had given their life. And to think that, you know, Kirky's pop, my pop, and they'd been over there as well and, and, and sort of come back was, uh, was amazing as well. And sort of looking towards the end of your time with uh, the Sydney Swans, 2001, you win the Port Melbourne Best and Fairest, which is the Swans VFL team uh, at the time, delisted at the end of the year, picked back up again by the Swans again as a rookie. But 2002, I mean, you play 13 games. That's as many games uh, that you would... Ever, ever played uh, with the Swans, and then yeah. you sort of you find yourself on the outer being delisted again. Is how does how did you was it handled better than I guess the Geelong delisting, or it was it how was that uh, process? It, it was actually very similar, <laughs> funnily enough. And you know, it's t- timing. Timing is amazing, and and again, you know. I'm not going to sit here and say that I was unlucky because I was in the system six years. A lot of people don't get six years and that to make a mark. So walking, I had, I had a groin up at the end of 02. I was getting treatment from Matty Cameron who I think just left the Swans at the end of this year. Uh, I'd been there 20 odd years, Matty. Mm. They're not very long servant and, and great guy. And we'll just have a chat. He goes, mate, he goes, you're going to be here next year. And I said, no, I don't know. I said, I'll have to, trade work was on. I said, I'll have to wait till the boys, the, the coaches are back from trade work. And he goes, mate, they're upstairs. And I said, are they? He goes, yeah. And so when I finished my treatment, I get in the elevator, go upstairs, and Ruzi's office was like pretty much at that time because it was, you get out of the elevator and, and, you know, you walk into the coach's office and all the other coaches were in there. And, mate, again, they didn't have to say anything. So I walk into the office and go, g'day, guys, how you going? And not one of the coaches other than Ruzi can look at me. So it's like, everyone, hey, better hang on, like, put their head down. <laughs> so it's like, uh, okay, I think I'm in trouble here again. But, you know, had a good chat with Rosie and, you know, Rosie had just taken over for 10 weeks and 
was about to take on the coaching, you know, in his own right. Uh, he had the opportunity, and because I've been dropped back on the rookie list, Ruzi's words to me were, if you're on the list, you know, it was your best year in terms of senior footy. If you're on the list, I was probably would have been right and would have maybe, you know, signed another contract. Problem was that Ruzi had to use a draft pick and me, who's turning 24, 18-year-old, who could be a superstar. As I said, I've been in the system six years. I'm definitely not one who's bitter and twisted and that about, you know, Ruzi making a decision in what's best interest of the footy club. You know, three years later, they won a flag. You know, mm. so he, he, he made the right decisions and the right moves. And, you know, I remember Horse saying um, to me, whether it was at the start of this year, that year or towards the end of the year before, my biggest strength probably was also a big weakness. And that was I could play most positions on the ground. And unfortunately, when you can play most positions on the ground and you're on the edge, you sort of come in and out of the team. And, you know, I never, I, I was never in four years. I um, didn't have a lot of, you know, I had, a shoulder in my first year, but, you know, didn't have a heap of injuries. Uh, you know, I was never able to establish a, a permanent spot mm. because at that point in time, it was still guys still played their role, you know, played a played a position. Dunks was injured. Yeah, I'd come in, play down back. Barry Hall was injured. I'd come in and play forward. I think, I, you know, I rucked a game against McKernan at, at Olympic Stadium and played on a wing against Justin Murphy one day. Being able to play in multiple, you know, well, nearly every position on the ground meant that, um, I was a bit of a spare parts man, I guess, and, and didn't consolidate a permanent spot in a position and make it my own. And again, you know, when you talk about the guys you're up against in a team, and this is what I talk about, uh, uh, Brett Kirk and me, you know, Kirky did the extra work and, uh, and stuff. And I trained, I thought I trained hard um, and was training as hard as the other guys, but I needed to be training harder because I was coming from behind, you know, because the guys that, were playing the same positions I wanted to play regularly were all older than me and had more experience. So, you know, these are things that you learn and, and, and yeah, things you learn that you take into business and that now, you know, and, and things that you learn that once you sort of finish that you wish you sort of had known a little bit earlier and potentially some older people in your life probably told you these things like your grandfather and, your, and, and maybe your dad, but you don't always listen because you actually think you know better, funnily enough. And that, so as I said, not 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 bitter. The advice the advice I'd give to young guys that just get to a club now, or you know, trying to get to a club, is that you know things can change so so quickly for the for the better or the worse. You know, you can you can have an injury, or you can get given an opportunity for for someone else's misfortune, and you you got to take any opportunity you get and do the right things and put your best foot forward by you know training hard or training harder than the guy next to you or you know, be grateful for an opportunity if you've got it in front of someone else. Would you say 2002, uh, obviously given it was your last year, you'd been there since 99. I mean, we had the likes of Tony Lockett come and go, Paul Kelly, Wayne Swass, Dunkley, they all retire. Uh, he yeah. gets sacked, Ruzy in. Was it uh, one of the more turbulent years that you had been at the Swans? You know, I, it's interesting because I sort of didn't sort of see it that way. I know, I know, obviously, you know, you think of changing of a coach and that would be quite a turbulent sort of experience and that. But I think the club did a really good job and Rosie and, and also too the way Rocket left. I mean Rocket didn't leave in a way too that was that was I don't think turbulent. And I definitely don't remember it to be. You know, so I don't think he you know, he behaved in a way which was detrimental to him 
or the club in, in the white left. I think his time had come. I actually remember having a conversation with him maybe a couple of weeks before he finished and he was sort of saying, because I, I think I might have played nine games, the first nine games, and he said, you know, happy with how you're going. You should be potentially talking about, you know, next year and beyond, but I think I'm under the pump. Mm-hmm. And so I think he knew and, and you know, like I think what was that? That was he'd been there eight years or... Yeah, since 96. Uh, yeah, six or six. He'd been there six or seven years, you know, you know, senior coach for six or seven years. If you're, if you're still there and having success and no dramas, you know, you're doing a good job. And, and, and you know, it's a tough gig to sort of continue to be at the top. And guys like, you know, Ruzi coming through, who was obviously, you know, a great, great coach and delivered a premiership and, and stuff like that. Yeah, so, so I think I, I didn't see it as that at all. I actually saw it as um, potentially, you know, it, it was a maturing in that maybe in, in me and that as well, you know, being another year older and, and stuff as well that you potentially you handled that stuff and you don't let some of that stuff affect you the way it might have before. In, in looking back at my career and, you know, Port Melbourne v um, and NSNFL footy v, v AFL footy, I think the sort of year and that at, at Geelong and, and being injured and I think some sort of self-doubt and that sort of would creep in about playing at the highest level and you know, I think you made, you made a comment earlier around when you get a serious injury and you, you get to play AFL and you haven't proved that you can play at that level yet, you somehow maybe even start questioning yourself and I think you know, Terry Bright was the, was the reserves coach at Geelong and halfway through the year, you know, and so it was really my first full year Mm. Uh, and, I, you know, and I wasn't playing great, don't get me wrong. You know, I was play, as I said, I was playing full forward and we weren't winning and I wasn't playing well. Um, but I was told I was at the crossroads in my career and I was 19 years old. You know, so I think when, when that sort of stuff gets in, you, you start to believe it, you know, especially when you're in an environment where you've got, you know, these superstars and, you know, at that point, I'd, it was, you know, I'd never sort of faced that adversity as a player before because I was a good junior and I didn't, you know, I didn't sort of, uh, I wouldn't say I didn't have to work hard, but I, I, I was in the team, one of the better players, didn't have to worry about my spot. And all of a sudden, that senior game seemed so far away. And, and then I think, yeah, and then, then going, to, going to Melbourne and doing pre-season and still not being in a position to get picked up and then your mate gets picked up on the phone. And so, <laughs> you, know, you know, things, I've always been reasonably confident in myself, but I think... At the highest level, I probably I probably had some self doubt, and I think that probably had had a bit of an impact as well. We're grand final week, uh, obviously not not the most normal season given the whole COVID situation, but mm. getting all amped up for a grand final. But this is the period where a lot of players do find out that uh, their services are no longer needed. I guess, yeah. uh, what would be your advice with the transition uh, with that some players are about to embark on? You know, JB, I reckon in some ways I was lucky at 24 because I wasn't in it long in the system long enough for it to be detrimental to my future in terms of now. When I say I wish I had studied a bit more diligently um, because you know I was at Geelong and we pissed fired around a bit there with a couple of the boys that were Snelly and that that were going out there because I thought I was going to play 250, 300 games at Geelong and be a superstar. So yeah, study didn't seem as important. And so 
knowing what you want to do and, and having an idea about what you like outside of footy and, and having interests outside of footy and away from the other boys, I think is, is ultra important. I think, um, and it might, you know, study's not for everyone. And, and it mightn't be that, you know, you study everything you want to while you're playing footy because these days too, um, you know, training at the club a lot during the day, you know, the very good and the very diligent will still get a uni course done or, or at least a unit a semester or something. But, but you know, have, have the pathway there, you know, knowing know, and try and work out the things that you do like doing. I've got a couple of mates that are coming out of, um, coming out of AFL footy now and, and they're sort of in coaching, but the, the, the coaching roles are, are diminishing because the, the roles aren't going to be there that they were last year. I know, you know, talking to, you know, Nixie at the Crows, you know, 11 coaches were there when he got there and now they're down to five or six, mm. you know, so there's not going to be as many roles. There's always another coach coming out or a great player retiring the next year who's going to be putting his hand up for a job and the media. And so, so those sort of roles in footy, you know, aren't, as, aren't going to be as plentiful as, um, as they have been in the past. So, yeah, knowing, knowing we're trying to work out what you, what you enjoy, what you might be passionate about and, and putting some things in place to, so that when you do make the transition, it, it isn't as hard because I've seen, seen a lot of guys really struggle. I don't think I'm talking about school. You used to talk to Kreza, you know, like, you know, Kreza had some ups and downs and that, you know, coming out of footy as a player and that with gambling and stuff. And he's worked really hard in that to, to write that and, and that and, and good on him for doing that. Um, and there's been others too, you know, that have done the same, you know, drinking, been talking that for, you know, obviously drugs and that too, because guys don't get a good footing on, on what life means to them outside of footy. And, it's sort of a bit of an institution, you know, being in a footy club. You know, you get a lot of stuff done for you. But everyone sort of wants to know you and then all of a sudden you're not there and things aren't getting done for you and not everyone maybe wants to know you and it's a massive change. If you've been in it for 14 or 15 years and, and, and haven't potentially had the education that some, some of the others have, then, then it, it, it's, it's not a good time. And I know a lot of guys, I know a lot of guys and I've seen a lot of guys that have been really stressed really stressed coming out of footy. And these are guys that have played 200 plus games, a lot more stressed than I was coming mm. out and playing 32 games at 24 because you're still young enough to make inroads and that, you know, because a lot of guys come out too, they've got they might have one, two, three kids. A lot of times their, their partner mightn't have worked a lot because they've moved around with footy or, you know, they've had, they've had the kids and they've got a young family and they've had the money and that to, to, for, the, for the partner to not have to work and then all of a sudden, they go from earning five, six hundred a year to less than a hundred. It's a massive lifestyle change. It puts a lot of stress on on the relationship. Too. It's that big, uh, you know, uh, life after the football. It's uh, it's it's quite a long time. But I guess yeah, when you're an athlete, you're a bit short sighted uh, at times. Yeah, de- definitely, definitely short sighted. And I, I think um, when when you, when you sort of you become a bit insular and you're worried about, you know, where your next kick's coming from or, or, or your next game your next game of footy or when's your next one's game gonna be and, and, and stuff. So so that that takes up the forefront of your mind uh, uh, the majority of the time. And if you haven't I think I think one thing that, that I would say too is routine and, and actually making time because I think if you if you don't have a routine for doing stuff away from the club and making time and, and, and actually blocking it out in your calendar to, to sort of do that, to educate yourself further in an area you like or just actually get away 
with potentially some people and, and networking and whether it's people that have sort of come through the club that might open doors for you later, spend time with them, learn what they've done in business and, you know, there's some great mentors out there in business that want to help boys that, that are playing footy because they play footy and they love their footy and, that, and you know, use that, uh, using your contacts and your network and that is, is an amazing thing. I think a lot of people shy away and we shy away from asking someone, oh, you know, can I come and spend a day with you or, you know, see what you do and, and learn from you because, you know, we think, um, you know, you know we're, we're treading on someone's toes or, you know, it might be a bit of a nuisance, but, but use it because, you know, people want to help. And I think, you know, it, instead of uh, waiting for someone sometimes to, to offer because that's what's happened in, in footy in the past is that you get, you know, things sort of done for you and given to you, actually pulling the trigger yourself and, and asking for help or asking for an opportunity to, to, to sort of have a look at something that you might enjoy after football. You may have finished uh, at the Swans uh, technically in 2002, but you actually did live on because my nan, who basically got me into AFL footy <laughs> and loving the Swans, every time Ben Matthews would uh, maybe accidentally have a clangor or something would happen, she'd be like, bloody, be- bloody Bennett! Oh, Bennett! <laughs> and I'd have to look at her and be like, nan, Bennett hasn't been with the club for three years. <laughs> So, so my clangers are still living on. And like, uh, <laughs> so Ben Matthews wasn't Ben Matthews. He was Gerard Bennett. Ah, uh, well, he, well, I'm sure he'd be happy with that too. Benny, <laughs> actually, Benny's another one of the boys that I that I still speak to, to and a great and a great great man. He just uh, he might have just finished up at Melbourne actually as a coach up there. I'm not sure if he's if he's there next year, but he's a great man. Geez, I'm glad he's taken heats for. I'm a bit, I'm a bit flat that my name's getting thrown at his clangers, but anyway, I think he could have uh, potentially he could have taken some, some heat on some of mine. Dane Swan uh, found some uh, interesting photos of you uh, online uh, partying with the likes of Dusty uh, Dusty Martin, which we were speaking about earlier, and uh, Dane Swan. Yeah. How did you? It, it seems like an odd pairing, you and Dane Swan. How did that come to be? Yeah, a bit of an odd pairing. Um, if if you if. You didn't sort of know how how to ventilate it. Um, Goodsy, Goodsy and Swanee actually um, got to know each other on a uh, on an Australian tour of Ireland and hit it off a bit. You know, become become sort of mates and uh, and caught up with each other a couple of times when Goodsy been in Melbourne, I guess. You know, during the next year and and sort of said to each other, let's maybe go away together at the end of the end of the season to the states. And you know, Swanee obviously renowned had been renowned for going to states and obviously his beautiful partner Tyler's American and, and that as well. So <laughs> Goodsy rings me one day and he goes, and I just got back from New Zealand and that with the rugby World Cup had been on and Goodsy goes, mate, you've been telling you're gonna come with me for five years since you left the club, you know, or longer. And and he said, You've never come away with me, you're coming this year, going away with Swanee and his cousin, Brahma. And um, I've got, oh, he goes, mate, he goes, I'm, I'm putting you on the press. So I I'd, I'd end up, he convinced me to go. And I met Dane and his cousin in LA airport for the very first time. And of course, they're both tattooed up and walking up. And, and obviously, I didn't dislike Dane or Collingwood or anything in that, but obviously, I'd sort of seen him play. And that, you know, knowing that early on in his career, he'd gotten a bit of mischief and that and a bit of punch on and, and whatever. And I'm going, this is interesting. And they're walking through and they're, Tattoos and all that sort of chat. You know, Rama's got the gold chain on. I'm going, oh, this would be interesting. And great guys, great guys. You know, Swanee's um, Swanee's one, you know, one of my best mates. Often, you know, I speak to him a few times a week. Stay with him in Melbourne. He's uh, you know, one of the, one of the things I love about Dane is that he true to himself. 
you know how he is 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 how he is. It's it's not maybe he's very proud and and has a lot of pride in the way he goes about whatever he does, whether it's footy. And he's actually very he's actually quite a smart man, um, which some people mightn't give him credit for. He's actually pretty switched on, especially street smart. Um, but uh, but yeah, mate, great, really good guy, very generous, very very generous and very very giving. And yeah, you know, his partner Taylor's um, she's a beautiful person and. Yeah, great people have become very good friends often. As I said, when I go to Melbourne, I stay with them. Um, you know, very thankful. You know, Taylor's an amazing cook and get breakfast sometimes if I behave myself and and that sometimes it's a bit frosty because Swanee's been out a bit late. But but other than that, you know, really good and yeah, he's been a great mate. And yeah, we've had some uh we've had some great trips and that overseas, uh, mainly to the States, obviously. We did Canada one year as well and yeah, we had some uh, we've had some very, very good times. Going away, I'm very lucky, you know, to just done and be able to, you know, become massive and go away with someone who'd done it a lot of times and had contacts and places and that, you know, in Vegas and uh, you know New York and LA and, and stuff like that to um to 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 be able to experience it because a lot of blokes don't get the opportunity to sort of do that. And I, I didn't do it till obviously I what well, the first year was two thousand eleven. I'd been away from the AFL for what nine years mm. and, and that and then and then I'm, and then I'm going on these footy trips then. Um, <laughs> Couldn't get on one when I was one of those when I was playing, but uh, you know, nine years on, I, I sort of did. And mate, my first, first, obviously those you know, Dusty and Swanee covered in tattoos. Uh, two thousand and trying to think what year it was. Might have been two thousand and fourteen or two thousand and fifteen. We had a massive, massive house in uh, West Hollywood, overlooking, uh, over, yeah, up in the hills a bit, overlooking West Hollywood, and pool, you know, jacuzzi and deck, and you know, we sort of. Had, you know, a bit of a big night sort of you know, partying and stuff and so he goes, mate, I'm getting a tattoo to the house. He goes, you won't get a tattoo. I said, mate, I'll get a tattoo. And he goes, mate, I said, you're the tattoo expert. I said, you work out whatever we're getting and I'll get it. So on the top of my left foot, I have I love Swanee, Dusty, Harlan and Finchie. That's my very first tattoo. <laughs> and, uh, not very creative, I wouldn't have thought. You know, people often look at it and go, oh, they're your kids. <laughs> and I've gone, oh, that's uh, Swanee, Dusty, Helen and Finchie. They're my mates. They go, oh, okay, that's a bit weird. But, uh, but the other boys actually got it as well. So Dusty's got it on his left butt cheek. Um, obviously, he doesn't. He, my name's substituted for his. Swanee's got it on his hip and Hal's uh, sort of got it here. And Finchie rocked up a day late but was meant to get it thereafter and never got it. Saw the light because uh, obviously he wasn't there drunk at the time. So he, uh, he missed out. But, yeah, so that was my first tattoo. Jared, you've been very giving with your time here. Um, maybe sometime uh, when I'm over in Adelaide, you'll be able to drive us around. Uh, hopefully, uh, that time, though, uh, hopefully that time we don't get pulled over and uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, and asked if we're bikies, though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right, mate. I, I couldn't believe that. I picked up Swanee and we were laughing about something. I've only just picked him up from the hotel. And we're going back to mine to watch uh, the State of Origin, and mate, like. These big blacked out four-wheel drives just started going off their headlights, flashing and that. And we're like, going, what's he going? What have you, Swing going, what have you done? What have you done? And we're like, started, I haven't done anything. And then, mate, I was in gym tights and a singlet, right? And I'm, I've got, they've got me out from the car. And then they realised it was Swanee. And they've gone, oh, mate, we, we thought you were bikies because we saw the tattoos hanging out. They've been apparently looking for, at the time I was driving a black Calais with tinted windows. Apparently they've been looking for a black Calais tin windows that might have been linked to some um, uh, some suspicious activity, and uh, and and Swanee uh, yeah Swanee got us pulled over. That was that was actually uh, 
before his 250th. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, what, what, what a time for it to happen. happen. And uh, I think Buckley said uh, well, it was going to happen to anyone. It's going to happen to Swanee. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And Richo, we caught up with Richo and, uh, and Duck, actually, after the game because they'd, they'd commentated and, and, and had a beer with them. And he'd obviously, he'd obviously heard on the grapevine that I was the one he was with when he, when he sort of got, we got pulled over. So, yeah, it was, interesting. It was definitely interesting. I, mate, I, did, I did shit myself <laughs> because... I, I think there were three, three four-wheel drive flights. And, uh, they, you know, those blacked out four drives are, I think, potentially special forces or some sort of different unit. So that's it was uh, a bit scary. That's his usual activity in Adelaide, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that happens a fair bit. Um, <laughs> and that usually on a Friday night when I'm driving around the city. <laughs> Jared Bennett, uh, thank you very much uh, for taking the time to have a chat to us. Um, you know, it may have only been 32 games and 11 goals with the Swans, but the faithful, they do remember you and appreciate you taking the time to have a chat and uh, all the best in the future. JB, appreciate it, mate. Anytime. I uh, hope to get to do it again. And if you do get to Adelaide, I've changed, I've upgraded from the Calais. I'm going to now. It's not, not quite inconspicuous. So, mate, I'd be happy to drive you around and show you the sights. And that just about wraps up Bloods of Old for another week. Please check us out on Facebook and Twitter at Bloods of Old. Give us that five-star review on iTunes. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify and on Google Podcasts. But before I go, a sneak peek at the next episode of Bloods of Old with Paul Bevan. Pretty much day one, they would talk around the Bloods culture and what's expected. It's plus, decals are all plus around it the locker rooms, everything's structured around the behaviours that we'd set up, the pillars, you know, we had hard, discipline, relentless, and that was, as I said, plastered all over the change room. So it was everywhere. Everything was measured against our behaviours. And, and out on the track, you'd be hearing the leaders driving those behaviours. It was see something, do something, say something. It was addressed right there and then. And it didn't matter what or how long you'd been at the club in terms of tenure, you couldn't challenge someone that was going outside of those behaviours. So if you didn't live by those behaviours, you'll spat out of the system. That was that happened a lot with very much more talented players than myself that just couldn't buy into those behaviours. There were some more vocal leaders like Stuart Maxfield, Kirky and Leo Barry and those types that would always drive that in meetings and at, at training. So... It was, the, it was the next tier that was important to drive that as well and ensuring that the younger players are getting the most out of themselves. Can't wait to deliver that one to you. And like always, up the mighty swans.